All right, welcome back, everybody. Let's go ahead and find our places. Glad to see you all here this morning. Go ahead and take your Bibles. We are coming fast unto the end of our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we are beginning the final chapter today. If you haven't been with us in our church for a long time, then you don't know, but we started this series in January of 2018, and uh, we'll be wrapping it up in just a few weeks here. Um, the last couple of weeks, if you happen to have been with us, of course, we finished chapter 15, and man, chapter 15 just ends high, doesn't it? I mean, it talks about the coming of the Lord to rapture out the church and our glorified bodies and and just all the blessings of the glory. And man, we had some good time in Bible study. We probably learned some new things for a lot of people. And even if you already knew the details of those events, it was a, hopefully a great encouragement for you. It's always an encouragement for me to be reminded of the, the days of glory that are yet to come that are promised to all of us who know the Lord. And so it's just been very encouraging and uplifting and, and exciting and, and god does that frequently, reminds us of what's coming, and then consistently follows it through with an admonition to live right. So we're going to jump into chapter 16, but just to remind ourselves, after God telling us about all the glorious things that he's going to do for us, it says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we saw this last week, but all I want to say is, God follows up the promises of glory with an admonition, now go do what's right. And that's, that's awesome. It's a great strategy. It's a great way to get our minds focused in on doing what's right. And then we jump right into chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints. <laughs> and you know, some of you might be thinking, wow, I, I mean... You kind of crash hard after that high mountaintop experience. Or we can look at it like the Lord reminds us of all the glory. He reminds us to go and do what's right. Oh yeah, and don't forget, among the things that we need to remember to do that are right is the collection for the saints. We'll talk about that today, okay? That's going to be our subject for what we're going to look at. You know, it is a very, in fact, I would say ridiculously practical subject the subject of giving, um, arguably, in my opinion anyway, this is the most tangible measurement of whether or not you are really all in on God's plan for your life. Are you willing to give of your resources? That's a real, tangible, measurable way of understanding. We use the term, are you bought in? Well, this is a tangible way to measure that sort of a thing. But we're not going to look at it from a legalistic standpoint. Certainly, we'll go through the details as we see this. What I want you to understand as we enter into this subject is this idea of giving. This is just descriptive of the spirit of charity that God desires all of his children to have. If we are his body and God is charitable, well, then the mind should be able to control the body to do exactly what the mind wants it to do, right? If we are led by God's Holy Spirit, then we should willingly sacrifice and give of our resources. 
And when I say resources, I mean time, talents, and treasures, right? We should give of those things to help others. The Lord Jesus Christ is quoted as saying, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And since God is a giver he, and not a taker, and since we are his body, and since we are indwelt by his Holy Spirit, we too should be known as givers, not takers. Let me just remind you, since we're coming to the end of this 18-month study in 1 Corinthians, that there has been a theme overarching the entire book, and that theme has been the power of community. The idea is, is that the Corinthian church had a lot of problems, and the different chapters addressed the different problems. And in their problems, it was just a manifestation of their carnality. At the end of the day, the Corinthian church was just ridiculously selfish. They were thinking of themselves as individuals rather than thinking of the corporate body of the church. And so we coined the phrase that we is greater than me. And I just want to point that out because, again, this subject in 1 Corinthians 16 is going to address that very issue as well. We need to consider one another in priority above that in which we consider ourselves as individuals. If we will do that, we will lead healthy, productive Christian lives. In other words, as a body of believers, if one member hurts, the other members help. That's the principle that I think God wants us all to understand. As a body living in a community, working together as a unified single unit, when one member hurts, the other members help. Think in your mind of the visual of getting up in the middle of the night and walking through the house and stubbing your little toe. Right? That little toe is screaming for help and immediately the hands go to rescue and rub it and do whatever you got to do and make sure you didn't peel that miniature toenail off. And you know, Okay, so one member hurts, the rest of the members rush to the aid and help. Okay, this is the idea God wants us to see and to understand. Verse number one says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. So the collection for the saints is the theme pretty much of the rest of the book of chapter 16. And what we see here is that the Corinthian church was out of order. They were out of order in a lot of different areas, in fact, but they were also out of order in the area of giving. And so Paul says, okay, let me write to you so that I can give order to your systematic method of receiving the collection for the saints. As I gave order to the churches in Galatia. You have to realize that in any social community, there has to be order. If there's not order, well, there's chaos. And chaos is never a good thing. In fact, if you were to Remember back the things we studied in chapter number 11, uh, in verse 34, I believe it is. It talks about giving order to the idea of the Lord's Supper. Uh, this idea, whenever Paul talks about things being orderly, it's always going to be in the context of what the church does corporately as a body. So the Lord's Supper, we come together corporately and they were out of order. In chapter 14 and verse 40, that whole chapter was about speaking in tongues and people doing things out of order when the body was gathered together. And he says, do everything decently and in order, right? In Titus chapter 1 and verse number 5, there's a call to ordain elders in the churches so that these elders could take their position to establish orderliness among the gatherings 
of the churches. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 6 and 7, we see discipline being carried out upon members that don't act orderly. They're disorderly. And so there's some uh, removing and withdrawing away from people that would live their lives against the idea of being orderly. Well, the idea of giving is, an, is something that is referred to that requires order. It's something that's going to take place when we're gathered together, as we'll see. Paul traveled through and started churches and all of the Asia Minor region and regions, and one of them certainly was the region of Galatia. If you looked at the maps in the back of your Bible, you'd find the region of Galatia is like central Turkey. Uh, the modern map would take it over the capital city of Ankara in the middle of the country of Turkey. That's the region of Galatia. Some of the cities that Paul visited in the region of Galatia are Iconium and Lystra. And uh, on his first two missionary journeys, Paul made travels through that area. So if we go back to Acts chapter 16 to get a historical perspective, we see this. It says, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed. But his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. And jump down to verse 4, and it says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders, which were at Jerusalem. So Paul, when he was traveling through Galatia, it says, most certainly delivered to them some decrees that they had to keep. Then in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, as I gave order to those guys, well, when he was there, he probably, among the list of things that he had to decree and help them, was probably this idea of giving. So we've given a title today's message, Answering Five Key Questions About Giving. And as I said, this subject really is as practical as it gets. I want you to keep this principle in mind. It's never about money. It's always about maturity. It's never about money. It's always about maturity. You could say it this way. God is not interested in raising money. God is interested in raising children. And if you will keep that thought in mind, I think this entire subject will just land very softly in your heart. All right, if you'll follow along, I'm going to read the first four verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. It's going to be very simple, step by step. We're going to see five key questions answered in today's message. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are, as always, super thankful for the practicality of your word. Lord, it all comes because, well, you promise us eternity and glory like we were reminded of in chapter 15, but our feet are still landed firmly on this earth, and you still have a plan for our lives, and that plan is to use us as a testimony to this world, but it's also to continue to grow and develop us as well. And so I pray as we study your holy word, inspired, perfect, pure, preserved, so we can have it, I pray that you will move on our hearts and help each and every one of us understand your plan and your will, and then have the courage to respond in faith. We love you and commit this time to you. Thank you in advance for what you're going to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, five key questions. We're going to start real simple. When? When are we supposed to give it? Verse number two, upon the first day of the week. There's your answer. The first day of the week is Sunday. 
Sunday is the first day of the week. Saturday is the seventh or the last day of the week. The seventh day was the Sabbath in the Jewish world. It was the last day of the week. That was the day that they were supposed to rest, right? Sunday is the first day of the week. It's the day that the churches of Jesus Christ meet. It's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. It's the day that the early church members met together in the book, in the book of Acts. So, so much for the Seventh-day Adventists. It's the first day of the week that we're supposed to meet, and that's what the Bible makes to be very clear. Now, a lot of you are Bible students, and you understand not to be legalistic about one particular day over another particular day. Romans 14, 5, and 6 tells us very clearly that we don't necessarily need to esteem every day uh, you know, different from one another or one more holy than any other. The idea is if you know, if you pick a day, pick a day, and if another guy doesn't pick a day, let him not pick a day. Okay, that's the idea. It's not that Sunday is more holy. It's not that Sunday is the Lord's day. In the Bible, the Lord's day is the day of the Lord, right? It's the millennial reign of Christ. But the idea is that the order that needs to be established in New Testament giving is to collect or receive offerings regularly and systematically. And we are to receive them regularly and systematically on the day when the church is to meet together. Every time the believers gather together to meet is the time that we will receive the offerings for the saints. So today, you know, we live in a modern world and we have options available for you that are online giving and all that sort of a thing and you may take advantage of those things. Is that wrong because I don't, the transfer isn't made on a Sunday? No, it's ridiculous. Of course it's fine. The idea is, is that it's regular and that it's systematic, and we're not necessarily trying to establish one day over another day, but that was the day that the believers met. You say, well, I get paid every two weeks. I get paid every month, once a month. Okay, whatever it is, that's fine. Uh, again, it's not a legalistic standard. The idea is the church always met, and so Paul said, well, that's when you should gather, when, you're met to get, when you meet together. That's when you're supposed to do it. Here's the principle you need to get. Be faithful to give every time you receive. Be faithful to give every time you receive. Did you receive something? Well, then you should be willing to give something. If you receive your regular salary from your work every week, give every week. If it's every two weeks, give every two weeks. Every 15 days, well, you work it out. Every time you get a page, okay, we'll do that. Paul's just saying systematically and regularly, every time you receive something, well, be ready to give something. Why is that? Why do we have to do that? Okay, so, well, it says that there be no gatherings when I come. In other words, the last-minute, on-the-spot offerings for special needs, although on occasion it happens, well, they're a lot harder to manage. They really are. I mean, it's better, or should I say, it's more orderly to systematically collect offerings weekly and then just have funds available to meet needs as they arise. Doesn't that make sense? There's a lot of things that this church is involved in that we don't have to come to you every time there's a need and talk about it because you systematically and regularly fund the ability for us to meet needs as they come up. And that's the idea that, that we're trying to convey here. On occasion, if you've been a part of this church a long time, you know there are times when we have special offerings for special projects, but we really try hard to give you plenty of advance warning. You can be praying about this for a special missions offering, or you can be praying about that for this need that is coming up for a certain family or a need or whatever the case might be. 
And so the idea would be is that you don't just walk in unprepared and they say, hey, we got to get some stuff, so everybody pass a plate, hurry up, let's do this, and then you're, you're unprepared and it's hard to know and you can't budget and manage and plan and is that need going to be not met or whatever the case might be. No, that there be no gatherings. when You don't need to have a special offering when I show up. Get it taken care of ahead of time. Have it ready, and then when I come, then we'll, we'll take it to the destination that it needs to go. Pretty simple. When on the first day of the week? Super easy. Number two, who? Who is it that's supposed to give? Well, it goes on in verse number two, and it says, let every one of you, every one of you, every one of you, sorry, no exceptions, no exceptions. If you're saved, you're included. If you're saved, you're included. This doesn't require a lot of Bible study, does it? It doesn't say, let every one of you that can afford it. Doesn't say that. It doesn't say, let every one of you that feels like it. Doesn't say that. It doesn't say, let every one of you that's in leadership. Doesn't say that. It just says, let every one of you. Let every single one of you. You know what that means? That means you guys over there. That means you guys over here. It means me, by the way. It means y'all in the balcony. It means, every, it means every one of us. Every single one of us. That's who it means. It's very simple. So as a result, those who don't participate in giving are either unsaved or disorderly. They're either unsaved or they're disorderly. If you're unsaved... Well, it doesn't apply to you. Every one of you saved people, right? That's the context. So if you're an, an unbeliever, if you're hearing this message and you just happen, you're not, you don't believe in Jesus, you're just here, somebody invited you, you're here. Okay, you're exempt. Congratulations. Um, I'd recommend you get that taken care of. Um, there are other consequences. That's another, okay. But if you know that you've surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, if he has given you, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, which he has, right? Well, you're a part of every one of you. You're a part of every one of you. Um, everyone can give something. I actually didn't ask for permission, but I, Kale has told this story before, and I appreciated Kale's story when he was raised right. His parents taught him when he was very young to give, and when he was a child, even just his allowance, he would get a dollar and ten dimes so that he could give a dime and you can teach anybody to give young or old it doesn't matter when we started our ministry in albania the ministry began with high school and college students because that's who was getting saved and in the poorest country of all of eastern europe among the poorest demographic of any country college students we taught them to be faithful givers and there were other foreign missionaries from the West, like myself, who were saying, I can't believe, how can you possibly stand in front of that crowd as a rich Western American and ask them to give? And as much as they were shocked that I was asking, I was shocked that they were asking me. Um, because it's not about money, because it's about maturity, because the Lord commands it for everyone, because they need to know this, Okay, if your income is exactly zero, okay, well, that's real easy math. You know, it's, that's not hard. 
but learn the principle even today, right? So everybody can learn. So today, the churches in Albania are very healthy, even financially. Well, the main church, certainly, that has the most longevity that I started, whereas they don't receive any support from the outside because while all of them were high school and college students 27 years ago, they're grown-up family men and women with good jobs and okay now they've already learned the principle and they're faithful regular givers that support their own ministry like you support your own ministry and well it's because you teach everyone that the bible says what it says that's what we do it says let every one of you so teenagers do you have anything in your pockets well you can give something right do your parents give you anything you can give something if you're on a fixed income, you can give something. This is not trying to, I'm not trying to wring a dollar out of anybody. I'm just showing you what God says that everyone can do something. And it's the principle of just demonstrating the charity and the thankfulness for what God has done for you. For the record, uh, I never look at who gives what in this church. If and when there comes up a situation where somebody is looking for a position of leadership, we do check if that person has demonstrated faithfulness in this area, but I never check the name and the totals. No, I never look at any of that stuff. I'll just ask Tanya to let me know if that person is a faithful giver. Give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down, and if there's a thumbs down, well, then we have to have a conversation. If you're in a position of leadership. But I don't look. I don't need to know. I don't want to know. It doesn't matter. I just want to know if you have been obedient to what the Scriptures command that you need to be obedient to. That's all. And uh, so that's kind of how we do it. But we live in a day and time that the Bible defines as Laodicea. And man, Laodiceans love their money, don't they? I mean, Laodiceans love their money. They're selfish as a general rule. And, well, they can be lazy. And so, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the spirit of the age that causes this particular subject to sometimes be a little burr under some people's saddle. Okay, well, if that happens to be you, and if you're struggling to settle this in your heart, I'd, I'm here to help you. <laughs> Ask yourself this question. Do you want God to meet your needs, or do you want to meet your own needs? That's the question you need to consider. Do you want God to be the one responsible for meeting your needs? Of course you want that. Or do you want to be the one responsible for meeting your own needs? You know, there's a great promise in the Bible in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And everybody wants to claim that promise and say, man, God is always going to supply all my need. But Philippians 4.19 has a context, y'all. And the context of Philippians 4.19 is understood in verses 14 and 15, where Paul says, Notwithstanding, ye, church in Philippi, have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me, here's the definition of communicate, as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. And in that chapter, if you'll read the whole chapter, you'll see that that church gave sacrificially. And we'll read later in 2 Corinthians 8 where it talks about the churches of Macedonia. Philippi is in the region of Macedonia. And so these churches in Philippi and Macedonia gave so sacrificially, even out of their poverty, 
right, to support the work of Paul, such that they didn't even have enough to take care of themselves. Is that what God's demanding? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying here's the biblical example of the people group to whom verse 19 was written. They're giving so generously, it was questionable whether they could even take care of themselves. And Paul says, my God will supply all your need because you're giving to take care of God's need. So unless you qualify by being a generous giver, well, then you don't really get to claim Philippians 4.19. But you can. You absolutely can. And the idea is this. If you want God to be the one to supply your need, you say, no, I'm good. I got a good job. I'm good. Okay. Okay. You roll the dice because tomorrow you might not be good. The day after tomorrow, I mean, you know, stuff happens in life. You know, one little thing and somebody god forbid is in illness or whatever they can't work anymore or whatever whatever and your company has a downturn and you lose your job and whatever oh oh now i need the lord to okay well why don't we just plan ahead and just start being faithfully walking with the lord and get in the habit of allowing him to be the one who provides for us very simple actually Uh, it's his personal individual request for each and every one of us Where would we have this? Point number three. It says, let him lay by him in store. That's what we're going to emphasize. In store. Store. Like storage. Okay? A place where the money will be stored until it's needed. Now, let me just make this very clear because, well, we are Laodiceans. We all have our own personal storage, don't we? Well, that's not what it's talking about. The place where the money is to be stored is to be stored after you give it in other words you are not to store it you are to give it and after it's given well then it will be stored you are to lay up by him in store the laying up is the giving and then once it's given it can be stored makes sense right the old testament describes it very clearly in malachi chapter 3 and verse number 10 where it says bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So in the Old Testament, the storehouse, it was the house of God. It was the temple. That's what it was. Okay? Now, obedience to giving of their tithes to the storehouse guaranteed God's blessings of provision in their lives. You say, yeah, that was the Old Testament. I know, I know, we're getting there, trust me. 2 Corinthians, establishing a pattern of how God uses the word. 2 Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles, excuse me, 31, and verse number 10, it says, since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, ding, 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 we've had enough to eat and have left plenty. For the Lord hath blessed his people, and that which is left is this great store. So they bring the offerings into the house of the Lord. It's distributed as there's need. Everybody has plenty. And if there's extra, well, that's in store. It's kept in store. Why? Because eventually, Paul's going to come through town. He's like, look, when I come, you don't need to have a special offering. You've already laid up in store. See? You're giving faithfully and regularly and systematically. Each and every one is doing that. 
So comparatively speaking, in the New Testament, the storehouse is the local church. Of course it is. In the New Testament comparative, the, the storehouse becomes the local church. How do you know that? Well, it's wherever you go to meet with the believers on the first day of the week, right? It's the church. It's the centralized place to bring the offerings in store so that they can be available whenever needed without needing a special offering on the spot. That makes sense, right? We're putting it all together. So we go to the New Testament, we go to the early church, and we go to Acts chapter 4, starting in verse number 32, and it says, And the multitude of them that believed, there's your context, we have believers, were of one heart and of one soul. So they're applying the theme that we're trying to learn in 1 Corinthians, right, that that we is greater than me, we're unified, we're one body, they understand that, one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. I don't care about me anyway, whatever I, I'm a part of we, I'm a cell in this body, whatever I have, this body has. That's kind of their attitude, right? But they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. So the people brought their gifts to the apostles, and the apostles managed and distributed those gifts according to the needs that they saw and they understood. In other words, there's a team of leaders that make the determination about spending and investment. Well, that is literally the same thing that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you look down in verse number 3, where it says, Whomsoever ye shall approve. Paul writes to the church. And he says, Whomsoever ye, church, shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality, your offerings, Unto Jerusalem. This particular offering was to send relief to Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a second. But there, Paul just says, "What well, you guys decide. You, you make up the decisions about what the need is, what the gift's going to be, and even the method of delivery. You, you decide, are you in on helping the saints in Jerusalem? Or how much are you going to give them? And with whom are you going to send them? And if I can be there to help, okay, I'll be there to help. If not, it's okay, because you're the church. You decide. So, Everyone on Sunday in church. It's pretty easy, right? This is simple. This is, this is just reading. Okay, number four. We're going to get to the one you've been waiting for. How much? This one you've been waiting for. And it says in verse 2, 10%. No, it doesn't. <laughs> As God hath prospered him. Depending on your perspective, that's way worse, Right? Or better, I guess. This is the question everybody wants to know about. Everybody wants to know how much, right? You know why people, everybody who wants to know a number, I want to know how much. Typically, it's because that person wants to know how little they can give and still be okay. Right? I mean, it's not the guy who's like, can I give more? It's, that's not the guy who's saying how much. The guy who says, can I give more, just gives it. You don't think about it, right? You're not worried about some number. It's the guy who's like, okay, okay, okay. So if I just do that, is that okay? And I can stop? Is that okay? I just want to know if it's okay. That's kind of what you're dealing with. 
The real question is, and this is really what, I mean, we need to talk about it because this is what you're thinking. Does God require the tithe in the New Testament? That's really the issue, right? Does God require the tithe? If you're new to church, the word tithe literally just means tenth. So that's where you kind of get the 10% thing. Because the tithe, really, for the church uh, epistles, it's not really mentioned in the New Testament, is it? And we typically associate it as an Old Testament requirement under the law, because if you just search the word tithe in your Bible search program, your concordance, I mean, just 99% of the usages, they're all in the Old Testament legal system under the law of Moses. And so with few exceptions, that's kind of where it lands. And people say, well, that was an Old Testament thing, and the Old Testament things are over, and well, we're free in the New. Okay, great, awesome. Let's, let's put it all in context, and let's put it all into perspective, because the truth of the matter is, it is not exclusively, that's a key word, exclusively under the law. It's not. Because it was applied before there ever was a law with Abraham under a time that would be governed by grace. So we see in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Now the he gave him is Abram gave Melchizedek, not the other way around. Abram gave Melchizedek tithes of all that he possessed. Now that's very important for you to understand. Because you have to get the picture that God's painting for you in that story. Come now to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 5 and verse number 5, where it says, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith in another place, Thou art a priest forever, notice, even after the order of Melchizedek. Now you could study Hebrews 5, 6, 7, 8. It talks about this guy Melchizedek and a lot of details about him. All I want you to get today is this. As Abram paid tithes to a high priest of Salem, Jerusalem, right, named Melchizedek, who is a bit of an odd character, difficult to identify conclusively in the scriptures, most certainly at a minimum is a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest, okay, and specifically tied to Jesus Christ in Hebrews 5, 6. What we have here is that Abraham, a man who would have been saved by grace through faith, a type of a New Testament Christian, paid tithes of all to Melchizedek, the high priest, a biblical type and picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see that the application of the tithe is not connected to the Old Testament law. Well, what about the Old Testament law then? What about that tithe? Well, we're not going to study all those references. That's another deal. You can do that on your own. It's actually everywhere. It was a law. It was a rule. It was a requirement. There was an or else if you didn't do it right? But what you need to understand is the tithe was established to teach God's people how to respond to God. They lived in this Old Testament kingdom of heaven, a physical, visible, earthly kingdom. It was the physical manifestation of God's kingdom. It was flawed. They were carnal, just like us. 
They were promised in the Old Testament under the law that a better day would come. They were promised that there would be a day when there would be a new covenant, when the law of God would be written on their hearts and they would no longer need the law. This would be a time of more maturity. This would be a time of more responsibility, right? So here's the principle. The tithe is a teaching tool for babes in Christ. Once you mature, you should give generously. That's the principle. It's super simple. The tithe was never intended to be a legal requirement forever. It wasn't intended to be a legal requirement for the New Testament church. Once you're a responsible adult, you no longer need a rule to require you to do what's right. Can I say that part again? Once you become a responsible adult, I've chosen all the words carefully, you no longer need a rule to require you to do what's right. You just do what's right. That's what responsible Christian people do, right? So in the New Testament, what does that mean for us? Well, I want to remind you that God asks us to give on the first day of the week. Now, it's interesting that he says the first day of the week. I mean, was that just random? Was that, is that just, it just so happened to be a Sunday? They just so happened to number them that way? And it just, I mean, if it happened to be on a Wednesday, would he have just said, well, the fourth day of the week? No. He said the first day of the week because over and over again in the scriptures, we have this principle of first fruits. First fruits. Now, again, first fruits is something that is listed over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament and associated with your giving of offerings to the Lord. God always wants the first of everything in our lives, right? He wants the first of everything in our lives. He doesn't want the leftovers. It says in Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. He wants the first day of the week. He wants the first part of every day of the week. You should be getting up in the morning with enough time to spend time with God before you go off to your job or whatever it is you have to do. He wants the first part of every, the manna came down, and if they didn't gather it in the morning, in the first part of the day, by the time the sun came out and waxed hot, the manna was gone. God wants the first day, God wants the first part of every day, and God wants the first of all your increase. So what are we to do? We're to teach children in the faith. And we start by teaching children who don't know what to do, they're not mature enough yet, they're still babes in Christ, that the first 10% of all that God has prospered you to have, well, that's where you begin to give. That's the start. As you grow, you give more. That's the principle. That's the idea. So we go back to 1 Corinthians 16. God asks us to give specifically as God hath prospered him. So here's the simple question you ask yourself. How much has God prospered you? I mean, you decide. How, let me ask it this way. How much do you credit him with your supply? How about that? That's a better way to ask it. How much do you credit God with all that he's blessed you with? Don't forget Deuteronomy 8 and verse 18. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. 
that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. So in the New Testament, God prefers that we don't just give a tithe. God prefers that we give generously, liberally, above that level. And so when it refers to it in verse 3 of our text, he talks about sending your liberality, your generosity, right? That's what he talks about. Oh, and by the way, Jesus is watching. (laughs) Mark chapter 12, verse 41, And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much, and there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called him unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. I'd say that that woman gave sacrificially. That woman gave generously. And that's what God's looking for. So we're governed by a much higher principle now than just a tithe. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 6, it says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So you should give cheerfully. You shouldn't feel like, oh man, I gotta do. He doesn't want you to have that attitude. Now you say, well, I have that attitude. I'm not giving. I'm not giving until I'm cheerful, and I haven't been cheerful lately. (laughs) That's not the idea. You're resting the scriptures. God loveth a cheerful giver. He also appreciates an obedient one. Let me just say that. And you know what? You should give cheerfully. You should give as much as you want. Give as much as you want, according as he purposeth, did I say that right? In his heart. And really what you ought to consider, Laodicean, (laughs) of which we all are, give in accordance with what you want to reap. You want to reap sparingly? Give sparingly. You want to reap none at all? Give none at all. You want to reap bountifully? Well, you better sow bountifully then, right? And if you do sow bountifully... Right Then you get to claim the next verse, verse number 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Wouldn't that be cool if you could apply that to your life? But it's conditional. It's based on your liberality. It's based on your generosity. Have any of you non-givers ever wondered why God doesn't make all grace abound toward you? Why you don't always have all sufficiency in all things? Well, there's your answer. There's your answer. How much should I give? Well, however much you want. If you don't know where to start and you honestly just need to have an idea of where to start, start with a tithe. It's a great place to start. But don't pretend that the Bible teaches that now that we have received all the blessings and grace freely from the Lord and we are 100% secure in Him spiritually forever, 
and he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings, that all of a sudden the standard of giving has decreased from the Old Testament. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Okay, the last question is why or for what purpose? And it says in verse 3, to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. So this is directly associated with helping poor saints back in Jerusalem. We hear of this in Acts chapter 11 and verse 28. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now this is the event that's taking place. It's the event to which is being referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and other places. So, why should we give? Well, New Testament giving is for two purposes. Number one, to help the poor. To help the poor. So while Paul was actually in Corinth is the timing when he wrote the letter to the Romans. And when he wrote to the Romans in Romans 15, 25, he said this, But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. And he's referring to this event. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia, like the churches of Philippi, and Achaia, which includes the region of Corinth, to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, there the Gentiles' duty is also to minister unto them in carnal or physical things. So Corinth is in the region of Achaia, and in 2 Corinthians chapter number 8, the first two verses and several going down from there say this. Notice, same context. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit or to know of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Verse number four, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints, and this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Verse 7, Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also, the grace of giving. I speak not by commandment, not a legal requirement, but by the occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. And so he just throws it out there. He gives them an opportunity. He challenges them with the obedience of other churches and other people. There is a great need. Do what you want to do, but hey, the Lord is watching, and I think he's interested in knowing how much you love him. There's a ridiculously practical application between whether you are bought in or not with your giving and your heart to the Lord. That's what the Lord says. Two purposes, to help the poor and to support the ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we studied it some months ago. Paul says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? And then he goes on and defends and describes his ministry. Verse 6, or I only in Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox 
that treadeth out the corn. As the ox goes and grinds the corn with the millstone and walks around in circles, he's also eating of the corn while he's treading it out, right? Then he goes on and he says, Doth God take care for oxen? Is God really that concerned about the oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? Well, he answers the question, for our sakes, no doubt. This is written. It's not that God doesn't care about oxen, but he didn't write that for the oxen. He wrote that for us. Why? That he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you, Paul and Barnabas unto the church, spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? Then he goes down in verse 14, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So, New Testament giving is to help those in need, and it's to support the ministry. That's what they're for. Here's where, the way I want to wrap it up for you today. In either case of those two cases, it is simply the body helping out the body in need. That's what's going on. Back in Romans 15, 27, it referred to the Gentiles who were going to help the poor Jewish saints going through the famine, right? It said that they were their debtors. It said that it was their duty to give to them. Why? Well, it was their duty to send physical aid that they had available to them to a group of people who provided spiritual aid to them. The Jews saw fit to get the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are now the debtors to those who got the spiritual info to them. Similarly, Paul and Barnabas feed spiritually the church. It's only the right thing that the church feeds spiritually those that spend their life doing that. It's the same kind of a deal. So it's not just random freebies for anyone who shows up asking for it. Biblical benevolence and help and aid and resourcing it's not just anybody who calls the number because the word church is on your sign out front. There is a responsibility of administration of your gifts. And it is in debt and duty to those who actually give spiritually. It's an important thing to understand. It's an application that we see all through the New Testament. For example, in Romans 12, 13, distributing to the necessity of saints. And in 1 John 3, 17, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him, to prove the sincerity of your love? So, since the one gives of what they have to help the other who has lack, and the other has previously given of what they had, spiritual resources, to help the other that previously had lack, what we have is, the principle of equality. It's not just charitable contribution. It's actual equality. 2 Corinthians 8, you have to get this. Verse 11. Now therefore perform the doing of it. We've been talking in, in, in principle, in theory, about giving through 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not just theory. Actually do it, y'all. I mean, actually do it. Perform the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to will so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. In other words, give of that which ye have, not of, you can't give what you don't have. Go down to verse 13. For I mean not 
that other men be eased and ye burdened. It is our mindset to think, well, why don't they just get a job? I got a job. I'm not encouraging you, Paul says, just so that they can live on welfare and you got to work your tail off. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, as he goes on in that verse 14, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want. By the way, great missions-giving principle, that there may be equality. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. There are those that invest in your lives spiritually, and there are times when they have need. Well, you happen to have physical resources? Well, you're their debtors. You need to help them out. That's the right thing to do. God is a giver. We should be like him. It's more blessed to give. Try it. Test him out. Here's a principle you need to get. It's the last thing in your notes. God will give more through you than he will ever give to you. You see, if you'll prove God, if you'll prove to God that you will be a conduit of his blessings rather than just a reservoir, you'll find that he'll pour more and more and more resources through your account so that you can then, he, he can trust that you will then give them and pass them on to the accounts of those that need them. But if you are a bit of a hoarder of God's blessings and just keep it for yourself, saving for the rainy day that may never come, well, you may find that the fountain, well, it dries up. You may find that he doesn't give that much to you. And if you are in principle, if you have principled your life to be just a taker and a receiver and a saver of what you get and never release, well, you may not get much. But if you principle your life to be a giver and a distributor to others, you'll be blown away at what God will give to you. You'll be blown away. And that's the principle. God will give more through you than he'll ever give to you. I'm going to wrap it up with this last part of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. For the administration of this service, the context is giving, not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ, and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men, and by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. You know what are on the list of benefits that come from your obedience and being a giver and not a taker? Well, it actually helps others. God is glorified. And people pray for you. <laughs> those are great things. And those are all other benefits that extend out and multiply out beyond just simply seeing that your check arrives in the account of somebody who actually needs it. That's only one of many things that go on. Why? Because Jesus is sitting by the treasury and watching. That's why. And you can't possibly give more to God than God can give back to you. I dare you. You absolutely can't do it. He won't let you. 
Are you kidding? You're going to be the guy in heaven who says, yeah, God gave, but I gave more. (laughs) Really? Okay, it's ridiculous, of course. Five simple but very important questions answered. Should be no more question about this subject. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the clarity of your word, and thank you, Lord, for how practical and simple and straightforward it really is. Thank you, Lord, that we can understand it in context by just comparing Scripture with Scripture, and we're thankful, Lord, that you have, well, certainly, above all, demonstrate you are the ultimate giver. Uh, You so loved the world, you gave your only begotten Son, and you've never stopped giving ever since. You've given to us eternal life. You've given to us the Holy Spirit. You've given to us your Holy Word. You've given to us the, the manifestation of the body of Christ. You've given to us all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. You allowed us to be born in the richest country in the world. Most all of us were born into good, loving families. You've allowed us to have uh, energy and strength and skills and education and opportunity to have jobs and to work, and we could go on and on to all the blessings that you have given to us. Lord, please continue to grow us up. Continue to make us mature, responsible, adult Christian sons and daughters that will demonstrate your glory and your life to this world. And as others see our obedience and the manifestation of your life, others receive the message, others are convicted, others get saved, and the process goes on generation after generation. We desire to be like you, givers, not takers. It's just the right thing to do. And if you remind us of all the glory and then you say, therefore, do what's right, I'm so thankful you remind us of this thing that is the right thing to do. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and stand up with me. This now is our opportunity. Obviously, we pass.